All right, guys, so here's the scenario. So you're walking around. It's post-apocalyptic Chicago, and you and your friend, you need an energy source. So to find this energy source, you're rooting around through a bunch of old buildings. Now, when you're in one of these old buildings, you reach up into a cabinet in the kitchen, and you pull out this dusty old battery off the shelf. Now, your friend says, well, say, I read in my survival guide that batteries have a shelf life of no more than 20 or so years, and the apocalypse happened like 40 years ago. Well, don't worry about it, Bob, you say, as you pull the strip off and the battery hums to life. Don't worry about it, Bob. This is a battery that actually runs on bacteria, and these batteries can last over a hundred years. Stick around and learn more with another episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Short Story of Bacteria. I am your host, Dr. K. If whilst you are here and sharing your Tuesday with us, if you could hit that follow button, that would be awesome. Now, Dr. K, you are saying, I'm a bit perplexed. Um, I've been very reliably informed that the batteries that power my phone, my car, my laptop, I've been reliably informed that all of those are metal. Those are not, in fact, made out of bacteria. Now, you are, you are spot on correct. All of your batteries do run on some sort of metal, um, but there's actually a Actually, there's a decent amount of research that's going on right now into something called biobatteries, um, and these may offer an alternative to the normal metal batteries that we use in our everyday life. Now, uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, but in order to understand that conversation, in order to set the stage for this, we need to spend a little bit of time about talking about batteries and how batteries work. So um, so how do they work? How do batteries work? Um, well, the whole concept of batteries hinges on this movement of electrons, okay? So let's say we have a specific atom in a molecule. Let's call it Anakin. You may already see where we are going with this. Let's say we have a specific atom in a molecule called Anakin. It has a series of electrons or negatively charged particles that are associated with it, that it can hold on to, okay? Let's also say we have a different atom in a different molecule. Let's call it, uh, let's call it Vader, right? It also has a series of electrons that are associated with it, that it holds on to. Now, both Anakin and Vader have a natural ability to hold on to electrons, right? That natural ability is called the electronegativity. And the electronegativity of an atom depends on a whole bunch of different things, um, including the charge of the nucleus, like how many, how many protons are present. Uh, it depends on the distance of the electrons from the nucleus. It can also depend on the electronegativity of other nearby atoms, okay? Like, for example, one atom can have some electrons that are impacted by the electronegativity of a different atom, and so then that impacts the electronegativity of the uh, electrons which are they're initially associated with, right? So there's a whole bunch of different factors going on. Um, this unity of factors means that there are some atoms within molecules that have different electronegativities, okay? Now, sometimes atoms of different electronegativities, they'll end up being close together. So let's take this Vader and uh, Anakin analogy again. Let's say that Vader has a very strong force pull on the electrons, a very strong uh, pull on the electrons, um, even stronger than that of Anakin. Okay, so that means that if these two atoms are close together, Vader will eventually seduce some of those electrons from Anakin and pull them to himself, to itself, excuse me. Now, all of that means if you take this and then expand this concept out to 
all the different atoms that exist in our universe. All this means is that their electrons are moving between atoms. They're oftentimes moving between atoms. And there's a certain amount of force that's associated with the movement of electrons from one molecule to another. So that means that if there's a really, really strong pull of electrons to one atom, then there's a greater of a force that is generated by that movement of electrons from one atom to the other, right? If it's a really weak kind of wimpy pull from one atom to the other atom, then it's a weaker force, okay? I'm going to say that again just because that's really important. If there's a really, really big, if there's a really big difference between the electronegativities of atoms, right, and the electrons are flying over from one atom to another atom, there's a higher force that is generated than if the electronegativities are similar and it's only, they're just, just barely being pulled from one atom to the other, okay? That different, different pull, right, produces different forces, okay? Now, how does this relate to batteries? How does this, how does this mean that batteries actually work? So the way that batteries work is they utilize that movement of electrons as a way of producing energy, Okay, I'm going to give you another analogy. We're done with Vader and Anakin for now. So just as water can be moving down a river, right? Just as water moves down a river, and you can use that movement of river water as a way of pushing, say, a water wheel, and then producing energy by the movement of the water wheel. Similarly, the movement of electrons can also be harnessed as a way of producing energy. Okay, I'm going to draw that analogy one more time. Just as you can take um, the movement of water as a way of generating energy through like a water wheel, you can take the movement of electrons based off of differing electronegativities of two atoms and harness that movement in as a way of producing energy. Now, this is where it happens. This is how it happens in a battery. So a battery, what a battery does is it takes two points called electrodes, and then it passes electrons from one electrode called the anode to another called the cathode, and that movement of electrons then, you harness that movement to produce energy, and that energy is what powers the battery itself. Okay? So that's how a battery works. Um, but I'm very well aware that you did not sign up for stories about physics and chemistry and batteries. You signed up for stories about bacteria. So how does this relate to bacteria? So this leads us to this concept of biobatteries, or this notion, this notion of using organic molecules or organisms as a way of generating energy. Within this subset of biobatteries, there are these things called microbial fuel cells, or MFCs. And these are powerful, powerful emerging technologies that try to use bacteria as a way of generating energy. Now, how would a microbial fuel cell battery work? Well, like all other batteries, MFCs, they have to work the same way. They establish an anode, they establish a cathode, and then they draw energy by um, from the movement of electrons between the anode and the cathode, okay? But unlike a normal battery, where you need to use like a metal electrode to facilitate that movement of electrons, what MFCs do is they have bacteria that produce compounds that can serve as the anode and the cathode. Once they make those, once they make the anode and the cathode, they can then utilize that electron flow between the anode and the cathode, harness that, and then they can use that to power the battery. Now, importantly... What this means is that as long as the bacteria survives and has resources to make those components, then they can continually generate that electron flow and thus continually make energy. Okay, so this means that this is actually a really, really cool idea. By using bacteria as a way of powering the battery, again, as long as you have the resources for the bacteria, you could have a battery that actually could last indefinitely. 
as long as those resources for the bacteria weren't scarce. Okay, so this actually means um, that actually makes MFCs really, really tempting as a substitute for a metal-based battery in some respects. Now, this is all a very cool idea. Maybe we can use thus. Maybe we can use bacteria as a way of just continually producing energy. Um, but the researchers who are working on these bio batteries, on these microbial fuel cells, are running up on this really difficult problem. Um, and that was what th that was, and that problem had to do with um, storage. Okay. So what do I mean by this? Because you see, uh, bacteria, they don't, they don't just sit still, right? If you take bacteria and you give it access to some food and they want to stay and they want to eat the food and they want to keep on growing, right? Now that'd be fine. But what that means is that if you're trying to make a battery, you want it to just be, you want to be able to like stay in one place and not do anything until you actually need it, right? You want to be able to turn the battery on and off. But if you take bacteria and put it in the presence of the food that allows it to make those compounds, the bacteria is just going to start eating until all the food is gone, right? So that means that there's no actual way of turning off a bacterial battery once you make it, right? This is a big problem for the, for the researchers. This means that the shelf life of MFCs is really short, and it's contingent upon the amount of resources that are available at any given time, okay? Now... This leads to a really, really smart idea that came out of Binghamton University. It's a really recent paper. And what the researchers there did is they thought to increase the shelf life of these microbial fuel cells, of these biobatteries, by simply using the natural bacterial ability of endospore formation. Now, this leads us to another concept. What the heck is an endospore? So endospores, they're these really tough, rigid coats that certain bacteria can put on as a way of protecting themselves when, when times get tough. So it's a dense... Uh, an endospore is this dense matrix of these proteins and these sugars, and they click them, all these little pieces of proteins and sugar together, and, and and this is specifically within harsh conditions. So bacteria will then synthesize this matrix of proteins and sugar to synthesize this coat and then put it on in these harsh conditions, and they'll just be worn by these bacteria, and the bacteria, bacteria will then go dormant until those conditions get better. Okay, I'm going to say that again just because I messed that up there. Bacteria will, in, when they're in these harsh conditions, will synthesize this coat of protein and sugar, wrap themselves up in it, and then go to sleep until the conditions get better. Now, until the conditions get better is a very ambiguous timeline. It could be a few days. It could be a few hundred thousand years. In fact, there are actually some reports of spores that are over 200 million years old, right? So these have some really, really long staying power. Um, now, spore formation, as I mentioned, it's in really harsh conditions. It can be caused by a bunch of different individual things. Um, like, for example, there's a bacteria called Bacillus subtilis, which is a very common bacteria. But you can induce spore formation in Bacillus subtilis by dehydration, which means that if you remove all the water from Bacillus subtilis, you can induce spore formation. Okay, so what happened? So the researchers then used this um, tendency of Bacillus subtilis to make spores in a dehydrated state to their own advantage. Once they made the MFC with Bacillus subtilis, they induced spore formation using heat, and then they were able to maintain that environment by slapping a piece of hot and cold resistant tape on the battery itself. Okay, so what that means is that the bacteria will stay dormant and stay dehydrated until the tape is removed. When they want to trigger the battery, all they had to do is remove this tape, and that allows moisture from this gel-like substance also contained on the battery to creep over to the spores, and that would moisten them. Once moistened, then the bacteria would wake up, 
then they would locate the food source that was already existing in their battery, and then they would start eating. And this then would allow them to synthesize the anode and the cathode components, like we mentioned a second ago, and that would power the bio battery. And they did this, and they were and this was able to generate enough energy to power this like little clock, which is really really cool. So, let's recap. Let's take this all from the top again. What does this all mean? Number one. It means the bacteria have the ability to generate power like a battery does, which is absurd. It also means that number two, as long as you blend that with regulation of endospore production, you can have batteries that last way, way longer than your normal battery, your normal metal battery, up to 100 years, it's predicted at this point. And that, as it turns out, is so much longer than a normal battery, and it may be long enough to last you through the apocalypse. Alrighty, guys, that's all I have for you today. But thank you for tuning in with me today. Until next Tuesday, this is Dr. K wrapping up another short story back to you. See you later.